Thanks again for your welcome. And um, one of the things you can please pray for us, as I've already worked this out, is when the preacher, like, you know, you, Ben, he's a great guy, Ben. You really do have a fantastic pastor. But he's, like, looked through his preaching program and thought, now, what's the passage I want to preach on least? Ah, oh, that one. Hey, John, what are you doing on this Sunday, mate? Can you come along, maybe preach, you know, talk about Bush Church Aid? And uh, I wonder what you heard as you... Uh, heard that read. Some pretty uh, confronting imagery and language, isn't there? Um, I'm in the habit of handing out um, a bit of an outline so you know where we're going. Um, you think, but I've got no pen to write on. Yes, you do in your bags. There's a Bush Church Aid pen. Pull it out. These are good pens, do they? Know how to good do, do good merch, let me say. So, uh, um, But you know what, what happens when you sit with a passage of scripture and on the surface it's so confronting, isn't it? This passage. Um, but of course, um, as I have uh, discovered this week, it's just so full of grace, so full of grace, God's instruction of grace for us. And so that's my hope and prayer that um, as, we, as we work our way through this passage that we will see and hear the grace of God in Jesus for our lives and those who are near and dear to us. I want to begin, though, with uh, when, when were you last, like, surprised? I wonder if you ever had anyone throw a surprise party for you. Or maybe you've thrown one or two in your time. You see, this one had been planned for months. It had been planned in silence and stealth. The preparation, meticulous. Everyone had come early. We were dressed up. We were ready. We were waiting there. And then suddenly we heard the car pull up. Shh, 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 shh. Okay. We heard the door go, the key in the lock. She turned the light on. Surprise! Whoa! Wow. Was she surprised? Actually, shocked and stunned uh, more, I'd have to say, talking about my wife, Gita. Um, you see, everyone was prepared and ready to party with Gita for her birthday, except Gita. Uh, she just wasn't ready. She wasn't dressed for it. She had no idea who or what she was coming home to. In fact, she was in her trackies, her uggies and her shirt. She was just looking forward to a quiet night in. She was a bit stuffed, actually. Uh, she had prepared herself for a very different night. Now, I don't know if you're still discovering things, if you are married, you're discovering things about the person you're married to, that 29 years, I worked out something quite early in our relationship, Gita does not like surprises. Uh, she loves to know what's going to happen, loves to be prepared and ready for whatever is coming. But what about you? Are you sort of a last-minute person who loves to wing it? You know, you, you don't mind a bit of uh, ambiguity tolerance in your life? Or, or do you like to be organised, prepared and ready uh, like Gita? Because surprises can be great, let's be honest. In the, in the stresses and the strains, the humdrum of life, I mean, a surprise, they, they can be great. But other surprises, well, they aren't surprises at all. Now, uh, keep your hand down if you have never used a past practice exam to prepare for an exam at school or uni, um, you know, maybe your driver's licence. I mean, we've all done it. No, you've, you've never used a practice exam to prepare for an exam. We've all done it, haven't we? We've all used practice exams to prepare for an exam. Yeah, I, was, I just thought if I'd get everyone to stick their hand up, you were going to stick your hand up, because we all do it. We've all done it. You see, my mate, um, he'd used past exams to guide his preparation for the final fifth-year medical exams. These were the big ones. You had to pass these to, to become a doctor. We're sitting there. He flips over the paper. 30% of the paper. It's a renal case study. Renal? No way! They, they've never had renal before. It's normally heart or lung. What? 
And I, I could see and feel his anxiety from across the room. He was freaking out. You see, we've all done it. And I wonder if you've been surprised like that. It's sort of like, oh, my goodness me. Um, you know, usually past exams, they're a good guide. They can be reliable. Um, but I don't know about you, whether, you know, you get near and you think, oh, no, nah, no, nah, the anxiety gets the better of you. And so you do end up reading other stuff as well. Um, see, Sandy and I studied together for that fifth year final exam. And it was a day before where my anxiety's got the better of me. I thought, I might just spend a couple of hours just reading over my notes. I'm so glad I did. Uh, I passed. You know, it was all right. You see, Jesus turning up um, is God in person arriving to let us know exactly what to expect when we die and find ourselves standing before the God of the universe. In Hebrews 9.27, God says people are destined to die once after that to face judgment. You think, well, who's the judge? 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, Acts 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, this is why Luke the writer has written his Gospel of Jesus. He wants his readers to have certainty about Jesus, that we can have now absolute assurance of knowing when we die, we will come to Jesus not as our judge, but as our saviour. God sending Jesus into the world is literally God in person sending ahead of time the exam. Jesus is the exam paper. But he hasn't just turned up to give us the exam paper early and we've got to think far out, right, oh, I've got to do all this good stuff, I've got to make sure we're... No, 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 he's, he's not only just the exam paper, but he's all the answers as well. He is the perfect score. He's the perfect score. And he writes and completes that exam paper for anyone who believes in him by his blood when he dies on the cross. Now, we're in chapter 12, uh, and a bit, a bit of context, uh, just as we get into the passage of the, da- of the day. Uh, this is all about the things that can defeat us and trip us up from entering into heaven. Uh, and it's, it's about we can trust God. We can trust Jesus with our futures. You see, genuine love, genuine love will always say what needs to be said when it needs to be said, won't it? As hard as it is. And that's what Luke chapter 12 is. It's Jesus saying, out of love, what we need to hear. There are some defeaters that can forfeit your entry into the kingdom. And so watch out for the hypocrisy of religious leaders who teach one thing but do another. Watch out that you end up living a life where you find yourself fearing people and human leaders rather than fearing Jesus, the Son of Man, who has authority to save people to heaven and to cast them into hell. Beware trying to keep up with the Joneses, getting into that vicious cycle where you find yourself chasing up and laying up treasures on earth while not being abundantly rich toward God and merciful and generous to your fellow human. No, no, you can trust God with your future. Trust me, says Jesus. Seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. Live to store up treasure in heaven. You think, well, how do we do that? Well, that's what this passage is all about. It's how do we do it? You see, like a firefighter, um, Jesus 
breaks this, I think there's, there's two sections, to two headings. Um, it's like a firefighter. Jesus says we've got to always be dressed ready, dressed ready to go. Our French friends in Europe, Jan, he's a firefighter at the, um, the, the, the second largest airport in Paris. And he said they literally sleep with their clothes on. Like They've got to be able to be dressed and out the door in like 30 seconds. Anytime the alarm goes, even if they're asleep. And they literally jump out of bed and they, like, they jump into their gear. Like it's that crazy. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Dressed disciples are ever ready. Ever ready. Every time you use one of those batteries, just think, ah, ever ready disciple. Rightio. Um, sorry. Yeah, okay, let's move on. Jesus begins, <laughs> he begins with three images to teach us that we should always be ready and prepared for his coming. Have a look with me there. Uh, verses 35-36. Be dressed, ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. Did you hear it? Be dressed, ready, the lamp burning. Uh, be like a servant waiting for the master to return from a wedding that first image, be ready, be dressed ready for service. We're just going to spend most of our time on this uh, because this is, I think, the grace that is here dominates the rest of the passage. Be dressed ready for service. And you think, I've got this thing, Exodus eaters, what is that about? Uh, that, that little phrase, it literally means, let your loins always be girded. <laughs> Okay, let your loins always be belted up. Now, in Jesus' day, in other parts of the country, uh, men and women, they all wear long clothes uh, and things. And whenever they wanted to move quickly, they would literally belt up, belt up their gear to their loins so they could run or move quickly. Uh, and so Luke 15, the father running to his son, that's exactly what he would have done as he ran to welcome home his rebel son there in Luke 15. Jesus is saying to the disciples, be in a constant state of readiness. Be like the firefighter. Be dressed ready for service. That is a very specific phrase that takes us back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, when God saved Israel from slavery out of Egypt to be his people. And so let me read that to you, Exodus 12, 11. This is how you are to eat the Passover, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. Now of course every year Israel were to reenact this Passover night every year, literally with their cloak tucked up to their belt, sandals on their feet, staff in hand, to eat the Passover meal in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. To remember when God saved them out of Egypt, yes. But a reminder and a pointer to the better exodus that was coming. The better exodus that the better than Moses leader prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 would bring when he turned up God's Messiah, the exodus from slavery to sin. And of course, so much of the Gospels are about Jesus trying to teach readers then and now. He is the new Exodus Passover Lamb of God. He's come to die our death, pay the debt of our sins, so that we can be forgiven, reconciled to God, and set free from the power of sin, Satan, and death. And it's why, see, Luke 12 is actually the second time Luke's told us that Jesus is the Exodus King. Back in Luke 9, 30, 31, Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain in front of um, 
Peter, James and John. Yeah, I'm just testing you. You obviously do that in this church. You just put people on the spot, don't you, mate? You know, uh, what does that verse, Luke 19, 10 say again? Is it, no, anyway, let's move on. But let me read it to you. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. What were they talking to Jesus about? They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Fascinating, isn't it? See, as Jesus teaches at the Passover night that he ate with his disciples before his suffering and death, Jesus' own body and blood is the new covenant bread and wine for the forgiveness of sin. It's why for every Jew and Gentile, that Passover night before Jesus' cross should have been the last Passover that was ever celebrated. That's why I actually think it's unhelpful for Christians to celebrate the Passover, to reenact it. Because we're Christian and we share in the Lord's Supper, the fulfilment, the better exodus. Jesus is saying, be dressed always ready for service in Luke 12 to Old Testament Israel. He's teaching them and us about the exodus of his cross and the resurrection that he's come to bring. Watch, be ready for action, be prepared. You don't want to miss my first coming. And this greater exodus from sin's slavery by my cross. That's what the next two images are reiterating. You've got the image of the burning lamp. Someone who is watching and waiting with vigilance in the dark, which is what they would have been doing on that exodus exodus night. See, one thing that those Israelites were not doing the night they were saved out is sleeping. They were not sleeping. (laughs) The third picture, verse 36, it's a brief parable. The good and faithful servant will be watching for his master's arrival back from a wedding. As soon as the king or master knocks, the servants let him in. Jesus is talking metaphorically here, I think, about letting him into the door of our hearts that he might save us as we put our trust in him. It takes us to a a passage like Revelation 3.20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. This is not very good, is it? plastic Um, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me it's the invitation to forgiveness and fellowship with God in eternity the only way any person living in this city or in regional rural or remote community the only way they can get ready for Jesus second coming is to ensure that they've heard Jesus invitation and opened the door into their heart and embraced Jesus and his first coming for their life. And so moving on, Jesus' uh, disciples, we're to be day of the Lord disciples, day of the Lord disciples. What follows uh, is promised blessing for the wise and the watching. Who are the wise and watching? They're going to be blessed. Verses 37, 38. It's going to be good for those servants whose master find them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he'll dress him, Self to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Now, of course, you would have already picked up. What? There's no, there's no boss at my work. I turn up early every day. He's never come in and put on the apron and served me. Bosses don't do that. And even less so, the master. See, there's something pretty 
subversive about this parable, isn't it? Of course, Jesus is talking about himself. He's come to serve us as the suffering servant on his cross. It was the sinners and tax collectors who delighted in receiving Jesus to eat with him. So the king went to his cross to serve and save sinners, not the righteous, sinners from God's coming judgment. Like a thief in the night, even Jesus did not know the hour of his cross, we're told. The point, verse 40, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's why Jesus says to his disciples in the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, watch and pray, watch and pray. He comes back and what, he finds him what, doing what? Sleeping. I wonder why we're told that. It's why the synoptic gospel writers record in detail the watch or the hour. Everything slows down around the cross and we're told it was the second watch. It was the third watch. Why are we told this? The failure of Israel and her leaders to be ready and prepared to receive Jesus as their saviour and king is a warning and lesson for us all, but especially the leaders among us. See, the only exam paper that will gain a person entry into heaven when they die is the exam paper that Jesus has completed. And he completed it when he died on the cross for our sins. And I don't know what score you got in year 12. I got nowhere near 100 or 500, whatever it is. Uh, but this, that's what a Christian is, is. is A Christian is actually receiving now as a gift the perfect ATAR score. Blameless now, knowing with confidence you'll stand before Jesus accepted. The faith that gains entry into heaven is Jesus' faithfulness for us. It's Jesus' faithfulness for us. And we respond humbly by repenting, receiving Jesus as our King and overflowing in thankfulness that shows itself with a change of priorities and behaviour that flows from the love of Christ. And that's the point of the second part of this passage. That's the point of Jesus' response to Peter's question there in verses, verse 41. See, dressed disciples are the wise and faithful. Dressed disciples are to be different. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable just to us or to everyone? Now, of course, we've been told at the start of chapter 12 there are literally thousands of people that are listening in. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Now, I don't think, again, that's literal. I don't think Jesus has a vision of his disciples just feeding people food day in and day out. I think he's pointing to the shepherd leaders that we're to be busy about feeding people with the word of God. But Jesus seems to be making four promises to four different sorts of people listening in here. There's a promise to the faithful and wise disciple, and then there's the promise to the three types of unfaithful disciple. Did you pick that up? Verses 42 to 44, Jesus promised to the faithful. Do you note that the steward's faithfulness, uh, there's only one here, is not described in terms of their position, power or busyness, but in their servant love of Christ's people looking out for their welfare. 
And here's a thought bubble for you to think about. There's only ever been one human being in history who has been perfectly faithful to their master, isn't it? It's Jesus. Is this Jesus teaching about himself? That when he died and rose, he has been put in charge of everyone, hasn't he? And everything. But of course, we note that the steward's faithfulness, as we think about us, his disciples, it's not position, power or busyness, but it's Jesus-like servant love of Christ's people, denying, taking up your cross, following after Jesus. It's looking out for their welfare. This love in service is how a wise and faithful disciple of Jesus expresses their vigilant watchfulness by being merciful like their heavenly father, by being compassionate and generous and servant-like, slave-like, Jesus, our saviour. Jesus promised to the deniers in verses 45 to 46. You see, what if the person is not concerned with Jesus' return at all, verse 45? Suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Now here is someone who has a position among God's people, but is using their position sadly to treat their people poorly. They've stopped remembering the exodus. They're living self-indulgently as if an unbeliever, living in debauchery, getting drunk. It's, it's Jesus' commentary on the religious leadership of his day, I think. And even commentary on people like Judas, who looked like he was one of the disciples until the end, didn't he? Judas, who in the end denied Jesus. False teachers who were described as sheep in wolves' clothing in Acts 20. The severity of imagery that Jesus uses to describe the punishment and destiny coming to these sorts of people who maul, who maul and ravage Jesus' people. I think it seeks to capture something of why you just don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when you die. <laughs> the cost of denying Jesus is being denied by him, being cast into the out of darkness to experience unending torment in hell if Luke 16 is to be believed. This is really strong language here because Jesus is struggling to find the language and the words and the imagery to, to, to warn us just how horrible, just how horrible that's going to be. Then there's Jesus' promise to two sorts of unfaithful people, those in the know and those who aren't. Verse 47, those in the know. This is the Christian disciple, I think, who knows about Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus' cross for forgiveness of sin. They know they should be watching for Jesus' return. Uh, knows that this is expressed. Yep, I should turn up to church. I should make that a priority. I, 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 should, I should be more loving and, and servant-like uh, to people around me. But oh, I've just got all these worldly agendas I'm pursuing at the moment. And um, let's be honest, I'm in some bad habits. I'm really not a morning person, you know. I mean, I do like gaming until 1am in the morning. And so I don't tend to wake up until 11am. But see, they're nominal attenders, consumers at best, Sunday by Sunday when they turn up. I, think, I wonder if this is like the person in 1 Corinthians 3 who has faith in Jesus, you know, saved by the cross, but they haven't lived and built their life by the cross. 
Um, they're going to be saved. They'll escape through the flames of just, like, but they're going to have no joy. They have no joy in this lifetime of having lived, lived uh, for the joy and the pleasure of Jesus, their King. The last category is Jesus' promise to the ignorant faithful, the ignorant faithful. The one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Again, it's just a, it's an imagery of contrast here. I don't think Jesus is actually going to beat people. Again, Jesus is using picture language to communicate the authority that he has to dispense judgment. He, he is the judge. And it's why we should heed his warning. And you think, like, who might he have in mind here? And I was thinking, I wonder if the sort of people he's got in mind really are the sort of Maybe the, the Christian, the young Christian, the baby Christian, uh, you know, they know Jesus died for their sins. But it's just possible that, um, that they're stuck in a regional or rural community somewhere, they don't really, or, or maybe an overseas country, where they actually don't have easy access to the Bible. Um, or maybe they're stuck in a, a liberal teaching church or a, a, a prosperity teaching church, and so... The people who are teaching them have been poorly trained and, and uh, you know, got little, um, yeah, they, 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 and so, so people don't know, if you like, what they're missing out on. Jesus finishes in verse 48, from everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And so it's, it's, it comes back to that, you know, if you know Jesus, you know life, and you've got the gift of eternal life. Um, that's what it comes down to. So as we finish, what Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying in this passage that we are saved by our resume of keeping the rules. He's not saying we're saved by a resume of rituals or how many rosters we're on. Jesus is not saying that the busy Christian is the better Christian. He is not saying that. What Jesus is saying is that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. Just like those Old Testament Exodus eaters who were saved on a promise, saved by God's grace, dressed ready for action. You see, it's as we remember and rehearse the cross, God's greater exodus from sin, slavery in Jesus, it's, we rejoice we bubble over in thankfulness. Jesus has perfectly completed the exam paper for us in history at his cross. And that's what we're holding when we turn up. It's like, here it is, Jesus. Great, well done, good and faithful servant. God has saved you and I to be his possession. We're not our own, we belong to Christ. And so it's with joy and thanksgiving, humbly, we repent day by day, living... Uh, trusting in Jesus and his word. And it's going to show itself in that change of priorities, a changed life of Jesus-like mercy and compassion, cheerful, generous service and sacrifice to see people saved. I've just finished drawing you a bit of a mud map in our leaflets of how Jesus' first coming relates to his second coming. How the day of Jesus' death when he took the Lord's judgment in our place how that relates to the day of Jesus' return and the judgment that is coming. You see, you've got the two comings of Christ. They're like, it's like we're living, we were swimming between uh, the surf life-saving flags when you go to the beach. You know, first coming, second coming. 
With Jesus' cross and resurrection, the last days or the day of resurrection has begun with his resurrection. He's like that first fruit that ripens in an orchard. Um, it's a sign of how the rest of the fruit will ripen. Just as Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, so those living and dying in him will be bodily raised from the dead like him when he returns. You think, what's, what's, what are the two buildings doing there? Well, Jesus' cross and resurrection is like God setting off explosives at the bottom of a building. It's good to watch if you've never watched a building being blown up, like properly. It's, it's quite an amazing sight how they do it. Um, but what you notice is the explosives go off and then nothing happens. And then about five, ten seconds later, you just, the building starts coming down. And that, that's, that's what I'm trying to communicate here. You see, Jesus' cross, his resurrection, it's like the explosives have gone off. Um, the last days have begun. We're living in these last moments before the whole building comes down. And one thing you know, that once the explosives go off, what's coming next is unstoppable. The building is coming down no matter what. And when Jesus comes the second time, it's simply to wrap everything up. Because of God's loving patience, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He's holding off that day of the final building coming down. He's holding off the day of his second coming. It's why when we become Christian and we hear his call of grace on our life, it's not just to follow him, but he commissions each of us into his service to give all that we've got, that we might fish for lost people with him. Uh, I sat glued to my TV September um, 9-11 as, as we watched the Twin Towers burn. The stories came out afterwards that, of course, everyone was running out of the, the stair towers trying to get out, except the firefighters who were running up the stairs into danger to save those who needed saving. Dressed ever ready to love and lay down our life like King Jesus for the sake of the lost. We're commissioned to be like those firefighters, I think. Ever ready Exodus Christians, rehearsing, remembering the cross every day. These sort of Christians won't be found retreating from the world, but running full bore into the world. Because it's a world full of people who are unaware and ignorant of the coming flames of God's judgment as we want to just gently, lovingly hold out the word of God and share Christ as we can. As if this Jesus, he really, really is the only COVID cure that can save. Let me pray. Merciful Father, uh, thank you uh, for all the Bible and especially those passages that are, uh, let's be honest, they're just so confronting. Uh, they sift us. But all of scripture is truth spoken out of love. And I pray you would help each of us to keep uh, discovering the instruction of your grace that is there for us all. And by your grace, please will you give us repentance to turn from those things we need to turn to that we might turn forth more fully to your son. Help us not to respond to Jesus like he's, you know, like a donation. 
Help us to be devoted to him. And we pray this for our salvation, for the salvation of people around us, for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.